So this morning we find ourselves in Isaiah chapter 3 and we'll cover chapter 3 and 4. We're in a series in the uh, book of Isaiah. And at this time of our service, we usually pray for one of our missionaries. And this morning we're praying for Dave and Tomo Robeson. They are in Japan. Uh, Dave got to preach his first sermon in Japanese, which is a tremendous uh, accomplishment, being that he's just new with the Japanese language. And the back of your bulletin, it says that we need to pray for them. There's believers who live in cities without churches, and then there's churches without a pastor. And we need to pray for that. Also, they have a summer camp coming up, probably kind of like RVBS. We need to pray for that. So Dave and Tomo Robeson, let's pray. Father, thank you for Dave and Tomo. Thank you for the heart that they have for the uh, Japanese people reaching them. Thank you for gems. Thinks that's Japanese Evangelical Missionary Society. We pray for the organization that supports them and we're thankful that we can support them. We do pray for many of the believers who live in cities without churches, that you would provide a pastor in a church. We pray for those churches that have no pastor. We pray that men would rise up, take up that responsibility. We do pray for the kids' camp coming up in August as Dave is attempting to lead this camp. We do pray for them, your, your safety upon them, helping especially Dave, who is new to the Japanese language. Help him grow and prosper in that, we pray. Bless his wife and his kids. We're thankful for the heart that they have. What an honor is for us to support them, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Isaiah chapter three this morning. As I was raising my little ones, Paul and Renata, they're not so little anymore, but they were many years ago. We use the, uh, the form of discipline that is found in the book, Dare to Discipline by James Dobson. If you haven't read that book and if you have children, very important book. And the discipline that we used was included uh, the issue of spanking. And Dr. Dobson makes a very good case for that. In spite of what the current psychologist would tell you, that you're traumatizing your child, uh, Paul and Renata are precious children. They weren't traumatized, if you do it the right way. Years later, as they grew up, they told us once, you know, Daddy, I really like Dr. Dobson's method because it was over in five to 10 minutes and everything was forgiven and we went on with just normal life and daddy and mommy weren't mad at us for weeks or held back resentment. So I highly recommend that uh, form if you have little ones. This morning we're gonna talk about discipline but rest at ease, I'm not gonna talk about the Lord disciplining you we're going to talk about how the Lord disciplines nations and specifically the nation of Israel. So why don't we pray and then um, 
I hope my comments don't make you mad this morning. But if they do, I'll be here after service. And Rob will be back Tuesday morning. Please call the pastor and tell him, how could Pastor Neil ever say those things? Give him a call. So let's pray. Father, we're so grateful for your word. There are times when you give us joy and there are times when uh, you speak to us as a loving parent. And we look at those passages this way this morning. There's something that you want to say. There was something you wanted to say to Israel way back in 700 BC. And there's something that you want to say to us this morning. Help us hear from the word of God. Help us hear from the spirit of God. We ask your blessing and ears to hear what the spirit would say to the church. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, in Hebrews chapter 12, it says that any discipline for the moment is not uh, joyous, but sorrowful, but it yields, now listen carefully, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness. So when it happens, it's difficult, but it does, the end thereof is righteousness. The Bible also says in Hebrews chapter 12 that whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. Whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. Now, we know, if you know anything about the Hebrew scriptures, that the Lord loved Israel. Amen? There's no doubt he loved that country and he still loves that country. He loves the Jewish people. He has a deep and abiding care for them Yet at the same time, he has a plan for them. There was something that he was going to do with the Jewish people, with the nation of Israel, that was special. However, as we have been studying through Isaiah, we have seen that the nation was reaching a place where it needed to have the love of God expressed to them in the form of discipline. So what we're going to do this morning is we're going to talk about that particular subject and then make some applications uh, for the present day. Now, how I'm going to do this, there's uh, two chapters. Chapter four is fairly small, only six verses. But being that uh, the major thoughts found in this passage are kind of scattered around, you'll see that they're kind of here, there, and everywhere. What I'm going to do is I'm going to kind of read the passage based on the main issues that I see in this passage. And so we'll kind of skip around, and I'm hoping that I won't lose you, but I'll speak real slowly. (laughs) So I won't. Now, the first thing we're going to talk about is the how of God's discipline. How was God going to discipline Israel? And I would have hoped to start with the why, but it doesn't work out that way. So let's read the passage, verses 1 through 7 verses 12, and then verse 24 through chapter 4, verse 1. And we'll talk about how the Lord was planning on disciplining Israel. Read along with me. First, verses 1 through 7. For behold, the Lord God of hosts is going to remove from Jerusalem and Judah 
both a supply and support, the whole supply of bread and the whole supply of water. The mighty man and the warrior, the judge, the prophet, the diviner, the elder, the captain of 50 and the honorable man, the counselor and the expert artisan, the skilled enchanter. I will make mere lads their princes and capricious children will rule over them and the people will be oppressed each one by another and each one by his neighbor. The youth will storm against the elder and the inferior against the honorable. When a man lays hold of his brother in his father's house saying, you have a cloak, you shall be our ruler and these ruins will be under your charge. He will protest on that day saying, I will not be your healer for in my house there is neither bread nor cloak. You should not appoint me ruler of the people. And skipping over to verse 12, O my people, their oppressors are children and ruin women will rule over them. O my people, those who guide you, lead you astray and confuse the direction of your path. And then finally, beginning in verse 24, now it will come about instead of sweet perfume, there will be putrefaction. Instead of a belt, a rope, instead of well-set hair, plucked out scalp. Instead of fine clothes, the donning of sawcloth, the braiding instead of beauty. Your men will fall by the sword and your mighty ones in battle and her gates will lament and mourn and desertion, deserted she will sit on the ground. How was God about to discipline Israel? I see three main subjects here. The first in verse one, Israel would suffer economic chaos. Israel would suffer economic chaos. The loss of even the basics of life, bread and order would be taken away from them. Secondly, Israel would suffer inept leadership. Verses two through seven and verse 12. Israel would suffer inept leadership. There were people who were competent and able to lead them, but that was not who was going to lead them. Who was going to lead them is mere lads, capricious children, young people who knew nothing, and even uh, children would oppress them and they would be ruled by women. Um, now that's not a put down of women, ladies. What that's talking about in that culture in that time, they were not trained, women were not trained, nor were they raised up to be the rulers of Israel. And so those who were inept, those who were incompetent would be the rulers. And that was part of the Lord's plan to discipline the nation. Please see that. So economic chaos, inept leadership, and finally in verse 24 through 4, chapter 4, verse 1, Israel would suffer defeat by their enemies. Israel would suffer defeat by their enemies. They were surrounded by pagan nations and the pagans would win over them. In the year 722, the 10 nation tribes up in the north were defeated and 136 years later, Babylon would overrun and burn Jerusalem and destroy the temple. This was God's plan. What Israel, Isaiah said in this passage happened economic chaos, inept leadership, and defeat by their enemies. Now, question would come into mind, why? Why would God do this to his people? 
Why would God do this? This, this was Israel. This was, a, this was God's chosen people. This was the nation from whom the Messiah would come. Why would he do such a thing to his own people? Let's take a look. Read with me verses 8 through 9 and then 13 through 23, and we'll see the why of what he's about to do to them. Verses 8 through 9. For Jerusalem has stumbled and Judah has fallen. Because of their speech, their actions are against the Lord to rebel against his glorious presence. The expression of their faces bears witness against them and they display their sin like Sodom. They do not even conceal it. Woe to them, for they have brought evil on themselves. Look with me in verses 13 through 15. What am I looking at? Verse 13 through 23, I'm sorry. The Lord arises to contend and stands to judge his people. The Lord enters into judgment with the elders, the princes of his people. It is you who have devoured the vineyard. They plunder the poor is in your houses. What do you mean by crushing my people and grinding the face of the poor, declares the Lord of hosts? Moreover, the Lord said, because the daughters of Zion are proud and walk with their heads held high and seductive eyes and go along with mincing steps and tinkle the bangles on their feet, Therefore, the Lord will flick the scalp of the daughters of Zion with scabs, and the Lord will make their heads bare. In that day, the Lord will take away the beauty of their anklets, headbands, crescent ornaments, dangling earrings, bracelets, veils, headdresses, ankle chains, sashes, perfume boxes, amulets, finger rings, nose rings, festal robes, outer tunics, Cloaks, money purses, hands, mirrors, undergarments, turbans, and veils. Why was God disciplining them? Let's take a look back. Verses 8 and 9. Israel had given itself over to apostasy, given itself over to apostasy and immorality. They had departed from the living God. They were now worshiping the pagan gods of the nations that surrounded them. We've talked about this before. And they had given themselves over to immorality, such immorality as was displayed in the city of Sodom. Why else was God going to discipline them? Israel had corruption at the highest levels of government. Look at verses 13 through 15. The elders and the princes of the people who should have been governing for the welfare of the people were using their positions to enrich themselves, enrich themselves against the working poor. Israel had corruption at the highest levels of government. Hmm. Finally, Israel had given over themselves over to proud and sensual behavior as listed in verses 16 through 23 and it was illustrated by the way the women dressed and acted. Israel had given over, given in to proud and sensual behavior. So we've seen the how of God's discipline. Now in these verses we see the why. 
apostasy and immorality, corruption at the highest levels of government, proud and sensual behavior as illustrated by the women of that day. Okay. Not going real well at this point. There's, however, two qualifications and then we find that in verses 10 and 11. Say to the righteous that it will go well with them for they will eat the fruit of their action. Woe to the wicked, it will go badly with them for what he deserves will be done to him. First, we see a qualification for those who are righteous. It will go well with them. Why? Because they will eat the fruit of their actions. What they sowed, they will reap. And vice versa, for those who are wicked. In verse 11, it will go badly for them. Why? For they will receive what they deserved. What they sowed, they will reap. Now, we have to understand what's being said here. In any time as described in verse, uh, verses 8 through 9 and uh, 13 through 23 and the discipline thereof, there will always be innocent people caught up in a war. People who didn't deserve that to happen to them, but it happened because they just happened to be there. Oh, you think about when Jerusalem was destroyed in 586, the temple was burned, and the people were exiled to Babylon. Do you remember that? Who were some of the people that went? Daniel and his three friends. They were godly men, and yet young men. But then, even then, they were caught up and they were exiled to Babylon. So this is not a, a guarantee that they're going to, Every, their houses are going to be okay and their goods. No, 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 no. He's not talking about that. He's talking about that God will watch over and protect them and that also uh, he will watch over them eternally. Okay, we have to understand that. When something like this happens, oftentimes godly people are caught up also. And he's reminding them that they are not the cause of what's happening to their nation. They are not the cause of what's happening to their country. It will go well with them within that context. But at the same time, it will go poorly for the wicked. Okay. What then, looking at the how, the why, the qualification, what then is the end of God's discipline? What's in the Lord's heart when he's doing this? What's, what's his purpose? Now, I was talking about disciplining my dear children, Renata and Paul. Uh, when I disciplined them, do you think I was disciplining them out of vengeance or anger or wanting to hurt them? No. That's to be the farthest thing from my mind. He even talks about that in Hebrews chapter 12, that God disciplines us like a father. When you discipline your children, what was in your heart? You wanted to keep them from going the wrong direction, amen? You wanted to help them not make trouble in the family. You wanted to move them from a place where they were to a place where you would hope that they would have the richest blessings of God. Is that not in your heart? Hmm? God is no different when he looks at his nation of Israel. There's a passage that many of us quote um, in Jeremiah, and we apply it to ourselves, and it does apply to ourselves because it's a good passage. 
but it also applies directly to Israel. Let me read it. This is Jeremiah 29. But listen to what he says. This is the, this is the context of these verses. For thus says the Lord, when the 70 years have been completed for Babylon, I will visit you and fulfill my good words to you and bring you back to this place. This is directly in, con- in context with what he's speaking about here in Isaiah. The destruction of Babylon. The discipline that he was going, destruction of Jerusalem by Babylon. And the, and the discipline that he was going to bring upon his people. Then he goes on. Here's the verses we know. For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare. And not for calamity. To give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me. And I will listen to you. And you will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. Ah, there it is. That's what God was wanting to do. To bring them to a place where they would call on him. And they would pray to him. And they would seek him. And they would find him. See, that was what was in the heart of God. That was what is in the heart of God. Now, uh, let's take a look at chapter 4, verses 2 through 6, and see how this is implemented. Look what he says. Now, um, chapter 4, verse 1, really goes with uh, the previous uh, verses. Beginning in chapter 4, verse 2, chapter 4, verse 2, there is that... um, a second, uh, another thought here. Let's take a look at it. In that day, the branch of the Lord will be beautiful and glorious, and the fruit of the earth will be the pride and the adornment of the survivors of Israel. And it will come about that he who was left in Zion and remains in Jerusalem will be called holy, and everyone who is recorded for life in Jerusalem. When the Lord has washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion, and purge the bloodshed of Jerusalem from her midst by the spirit of judgment and the spirit of burning. Then the Lord will create over the whole area of the Mount of Zion and over her assemblies a cloud by day, even smoke, and the brightness of a flaming fire by night. For over all the glory will be a canopy. There will be a shelter to give shade from the heat by day and refuge and protection from the storm and the rain. Notice the end of what God was wanting to do. Three things. First, in verse two, in that day, Israel will experience the branch of the Lord. You're thinking, what is the branch of the Lord? It's not a what, it's a whom. The branch of the Lord is Jesus. What is he talking about? He was doing that which he was doing in Isaiah's day because he was preparing them for the Messiah. The first coming and, if you look in verses 3 through 6, the second coming, the millennium. There was something that he had to do and he was going to do it to keep them from going sideways, and following the ways of the pagan nations. This was part of his plan to bring the branch, to bring Jesus in the first and second coming. And look what he goes on. In that day, the Lord will 
Israel will experience the branch of the Lord. In that day, Israel will be cleansed of its filth. There was, a pro, there was something he wanted to do. He wanted to cleanse them. He wanted to bring them back from their immoral acts and worshiping foreign pagan gods to worshiping the true and living God. In that day, Israel will be cleansed of its filth. And in that day, Israel will be sheltered and protected by the presence of the Lord. Sheltered and protected. What is he speaking about? These things even haven't been fulfilled yet. He's speaking about that wonderful time when Christ returns the second time. And he establishes his capital in Jerusalem. He's speaking about that time. And this was part of his plan. Now, if you were there that day in 586 when Jerusalem was finally destroyed, probably you wouldn't have understood what was going on. And so Isaiah speaks to the people and he tells them, listen, listen, there's something much bigger than your current circumstances, the current difficulties that you're going through. I have a wonderful plan and he's going to complete it. Now, as sure as these words took place, in the why and the how and the qualifications, surely that which was in the heart of God will take place. You can put money on it. It's going to happen. Okay. All right. We've looked at the how and the why of God's discipline of his nation of Israel. The qualifications and the end. I want to take the remaining uh, time to make some practical applications and here's where I probably can get in trouble but that's okay you'll just bear with me I have five qualifical applications practical applications first without pulling this uh, chapters these two chapters out of context and without exaggerating anything about um, our particular country, the United States, um, I would have to say there's an amazing parallel between what is described here and what we are experiencing here in this country. Now certainly, the America is not Israel, amen? We're not saying that at all. But certainly you would have to say that the Amer America has been greatly used in, a, in an unbelievable way to be a light to the world. More missions dollars, more missionaries, more millions of people have been discovered Jesus as Messiah because of what has taken place in the last 200 plus years here in this country. Wouldn't you say that was yet? That's true. Would you say that America has been greatly blessed by God, hmm? yeah. Would you say that in a, in a very real way that Israel, uh, United States, has been loved by God and is continually loved by God? Without pulling this whole thing out of total context, we would say there are amazing parallels. And if the Lord loves the United States, and he does, what does that mean? Those whom the Lord loves, he... Okay, so bear with me for just a few minutes. 
couple of thoughts on this first application. All of us would agree that our country is moving in the wrong direction. Even non-Christians would say that our country seems to be heading in the wrong direction. Without a doubt. Oftentimes, uh, we see even now what is good is being called evil and what is evil is becoming, becoming called good. We see uh, apostasy in many of the so-called Christian churches as they give in to the culture and the new thought of the day. We see uh, immorality uh, that we would not ever imagine could be taking place, say, even five or ten years ago. We can't believe that some of the things that we see on television are, are actually happening and being called good. We see corruption at the highest levels of government. At the highest levels of government, both major candidates, one is going to court and the other one is, is being investigated by the FBI, even as she runs for public office. We see corruption at the highest levels of government. We see also proud, sensual behavior exhibited by many, many people, even as it says in verse 9, displaying their sins as Sodom. Without stretching uh, the context of this passage, what is true of point two, immorality, corruption, proud sensual behavior, would in natural circumstances lead to the how of God's discipline, which is economic chaos, inept leadership at the highest levels, and defeat by our enemies. I'll just put that out as a supposition to you and let you deal with that. Okay. You're not making us feel very comfortable, Neil. My second application. In Romans 8.28, it says that God causes all things to work together for the good for those who love him and are called according to his purposes. In, in laying this out, you have to be able to trust the Lord. Even as I said, imagine what Daniel felt and his friends as they saw the temple destroyed. Imagine, and they were dragged off. Just imagine what they felt. They had to trust the Lord. And we who are Christians, those of us who know and love Jesus, we are going to have to trust the Lord in these coming years, my friends. You're going to have to step back and get a bigger picture of the kingdom of God that doesn't necessarily mean everything is going to be happy, clappy here in these United States. You're going to have to trust the Lord. We are going to have to trust the Lord that he is going to take our sin 
and work it together for his purposes here on this earth. It's much bigger than just this little single country. God is calling you, he's calling me, to trust the Lord in that which is about to take place. Now, I'm not a prophet nor a son of a prophet, um, but if I can read the pages of Scripture, and I can, there's some application here. Okay. In Matthew chapter 5, Jesus speaks, this is my um, third application. Matthew chapter 5, Jesus speaks to his disciples, and he says this. You, this is 5 verse 13. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has become tasteless, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You, you, me, are the light of the world. A steady set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor does anyone hide a lamp and put it under a basket. But on the lampstand, it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may glorify, that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. We are called to be salt and light. Salt is a preserving element. Someone once said, in order for evil to prevail, good men must do nothing. Preserving element, that's what we're called to be. We are called, if you're a Christian and you know Christ, you are called to stand for that which is good and right. You are to speak the truth in love and you are not to give in to the new way of thinking. That is not what you're called to do. You are called to be a preserving element. This church is called to be a preserving element in the society. That's what he says. And if you read the book of Jeremiah, and he was there to the bitter end, and he was a preserving element, or at least he tried to be, do you read the book of Jeremiah, and you will see, as a result, he suffered terribly. And I don't want to paint a bad picture of uh, in the future, but we just need to man up. We need to realize that we need to speak the truth in love and stand for what is right and true and not compromise with the current way of thinking. We believe the Bible and what the Bible teaches and we speak the truth in love. Secondly, Jesus called us to be lights. Notice what he says. Let your light shine before men in such a, good, in such a way they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. We are called not only just to say it, but we're to live it. And live it in such a way that those who don't know Jesus Christ, those who haven't accepted him as their Lord and Savior, will see both your words and your actions and will be drawn to the Savior in these last days. That's what you're called to be. That's what I'm called to be. Salt and light, a preserving element, and a light to the lost and dying around us. That's what God is calling us to do. That's what God is calling you to do. That is God, what is God calling me to do? Salt and light. Okay. My fourth application. In the book of Second Chronicles, and most of us are very much aware 
of this verse, but I wanted to read it within uh, the context. In the context of 2 Chronicles 7, verses 11 through 14, what has happened is Solomon has just finished dedicating the temple. He's built this wonderful temple. He's dedicated. He made incredible prayer. And he goes to bed and the Lord speaks to him. Look what it says. This is 2 Chronicles 7, 11. Thus Solomon finished the house of the Lord and the king's palace and successfully completed all they had planned on doing in the house of the Lord and his palace. Okay. Verse 12. Then the Lord appeared to Solomon at night and said to him, I have heard your prayer. I have chosen this place for myself as a house of sacrifice. Verse 13. If I shut up the heavens so there is no rain, or if I command the locusts to devour the land, or if I send pestilence among my people, and my people who, here it is, here's the verse most of us know, and my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face, turn from their wicked ways, I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and I will heal their land. Now, most times when that verse is talked about, it says, well, if my people who are called by my name, who are that? That's the Christians. So if the Christians will humble themselves, pray, seek the face of the Lord, turn from their wicked ways, God will do what? He will forgive their sin and heal their land. And I believe that. But wait, look at the context. Look at the context. When he was speaking to Solomon, he said, if my people who were called by my name, who were his people? He was speaking to the whole country. Is that not true? He was speaking, if my people, the whole country, will do what? Humble themselves, pray, seek the face of the Lord. I will turn and heal their sin and heal their land. Is that not what he's saying? Now, when Jonah went to Nineveh, what did he do? He preached the gospel and he said, 40 days and judgment's gonna fall. Remember that? And what happened? They humbled themselves, they fasted, and what happened? Judgment was pulled back for several generations. They did not suffer the judgment of God and the discipline of God. Why? Because the whole nation turned back to God. That's what that verse is saying. That's what needs to happen. We need to pray for revival. We need to pray that the nation hears the voice of the Lord. We need to pray that God would have mercy on this nation and the people that America would turn back from their sin and their immorality. That's what needs to happen. Okay, a couple applications. We talked about Israel, the parallels. We've talked about God working all things together for the good. We've talked about that we need to be salt and light. We've talked about how the nation needs revival. And revival always begins where? In the church. When they see you and they see me, they turn. Okay. Here's a very practical application um, that springs from all of these. We have an election coming up in November. Okay? We have an election, both for the presidents, the president, senators, representatives, uh, state officials, all those. 
Now, to be very frank with you, four years ago, four years ago, four million Christians sat out the election, said, I won't vote. I won't vote. I will not vote for a Mormon. I will not vote for a Mormon. And because they did that, President Obama was reelected. That's just a fact. I'm not talking about being Democratic or Republican. Just listen to me. Four million Christians sat out the election and would not vote for a Mormon. They said, we can't do that. And we, as a result, the Democratic president was reelected. That's a fact. Okay, let's take it looking from the Republican side. If your man was Bernie, okay, and uh, Senator Sanders, and that was the man you want, but it now looks like uh, Hillary Clinton is going to be the nominee for the Democratic Party. And if you are saying, well, my man was Bernie, and I, there's no way that I am ever going to vote for Hillary Clinton because Bernie was my man, and I'm, I believe in Bernie. If that's your state, if you're going to do that, you know what's going to happen? You're giving a vote to the Republican candidate. By doing that, by not standing up and doing what you know, what you think is best for the country. Is that not true? That is true. So if you're in that place, if you're going to sit out the election, essentially you're saying, I'm voting for the Republican candidate. That's what you're doing. Conversely, if you're on the Republican side, so I'm not saying, don't get me wrong, I'm not saying Democrat or Republican, I'm just stating some very simple facts. If, however, if you're a Republican and you're getting ready to vote, and your man was Senator Cruz or Senator Rubio or many of the other candidates, but it doesn't look that they're going to be the candidate. And you're going to say, come November the 4th, I cannot vote for Donald Trump. There's no way that I can vote for that man. Essentially, and so I'm not going to vote or I'm going to write in or maybe vote for the third party candidate. You know what you're doing? Do you know what you're doing? Do you realize what you're doing? You are voting for the Democrat. That is a fact. Now, I told you you were going to get mad at me. <laughs> Here's the question I want to ask you. On November 5th, on November 5th, are you going to feel right or are you going to do right? Meaning, feel right, well, I stood on my principles and I did not vote for Da 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 da. Whatever, however you feel. Are you going to feel right or are you going to do right? We are not electing a pastor. We are not electing a bishop. We're not electing a prophet. We're trying to pick out as best as we can the candidates that are put on that ballot, both for president, senator, representative, and all the people on that ballot and all the issues that are on that ballot. Are you going to feel right or are you going to do the best possible job with the candidates and the positions that are presented on that ballot? You have to decide. And God calls you to do the best that you possibly can with prayer and thoughtful investigation to vote for those issues and those people and those men and women who you think will do the best possible job for our country. That's a very practical application. Now, I had four spiritual applications, amen? This is not a political statement, and I had one 
practical application. And I've gone four minutes over. Yeah. <laughs> November 8th, yes. Well, why don't we pray and see what the Lord will do? Father, we want to say to you, um, we're thankful for the word of God and how it speaks to us. We ask that um, we would respond in a way that would uh, honor you in our actions leading up to the election, in our actions after the election, in the actions for our country, in our actions towards those around us who don't know you. We might be salt and light. We might know the love of Christ. And those around us might see that in our lives, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand with me this morning.